Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Make Shop Podcast with Megan of Shop Park Story and myself, Anusha of Talisa Natural. And we are so excited to have our first official guest. <laughs> we have Dennis here of Austin Morris Furniture. And um, like I said, so excited to have Dennis here. Um, I don't know Dennis. Me- Megan knows him, right? Megan has, well, no, you know Dennis more than I do. So I've just met Dennis. However, I've become very familiar with Dennis's work on Instagram. I have been scrolling and I was like, I need that piece and that piece and that piece. But anyway, <laughs> um, so welcome, Dennis. Thank you. It's exciting. We, we're happy to have you here and we are excited to hear about your business. So um, we're going to jump right into it. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Give us a little bit of background and uh, basically how you started your business and, you know, how you've come along to this point. Sure. So I um, started my career actually doing graphic design work. I went to school for graphic design and I studied that and I, and I worked for about 15 years um, as a designer doing traditional print media, doing a lot of interactive uh, like kind of web design, and then finally moving into the branding space and doing brand strategy. And uh, my last role was as creative director for a branding agency here in D.C. And that was um, – I left that about <clears> – excuse me – about two years ago. And I did a little bit of freelancing and then kind of went full-time with Austin Morris – when it felt ready. Um, I had been building stuff literally my entire life. I've especially out of wood, but, um, really anything I have sort of that maker mindset. Um, you know, as a kid, I was a Lego maniac and, um, you know, just kind of using all my dad's tools and, and building stuff. And then, um, just working with my hands has really just been a part of me my entire life. And, um, living in the city though, it's kind of hard to find space to do that. And I've always lived in cities. So, um, I've done, you know, home renovations and stuff like that. I renovated a condo that we used to live in and I built some furniture along the way and I've, you know, done projects here and there, but I've always really, really wanted to, to do it full time, but it never seemed feasible. I thought that this was going to be the thing I do in retirement, you know, it's like when I get to finally retire, then I can kind of make furniture and do what I actually want to do. Um, but you know, the sort of catalyst for Austin Morris was, um, I was building some pieces for friends and I was building some pieces for family. And then I just realized, you know what, let's see what happens if I try and market myself. Let's see if I can make this something, whether it's a side hustle that might turn into a full-time gig or, or what. And, um, you know, it kind of has grown from there. And when I did decide to go full-time with it, it's, it kind of just exploded for me and took off really fast. And I'm still kind of riding the wave. And um, it's been really exciting and interesting. When you were working for the agency, were you building on the side on nights and weekends? Like, did you have a customer base at that point? 
Yeah, I had some. It was some commissions from, um, I would say, like, out-of-network people I didn't know, but it was mostly for people I knew. So it was, again, friends and family. The the first sort of real commissions I got through even friends was I had a friend or have a friend who is a fiber artist, and I would build all the frames for her pieces. And then she moved into a new house and was like, hey, you you think you can make me a dining table? And I was like, sure, I can do any, you know, I can make anything. So I made her a dining table. And is that the dining table I'm obsessed with? Uh, I think it is. Yeah. I think that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> I found yeah. Dennis because I found a dining room table that I just fell in love with on Instagram. And oh um, I hope to be able to work with Dennis to build some custom display tables at the shop inspired in large part by that dining table. (laughs) Um, And if I ever own a house that could fit a real dining table, (laughs) I might have to own one from my home too. Yeah. Um, So you said at the time you went freelance, were you doing like 50% freelance branding work and 50% build work or how did you how did you yeah, it was it was kind of 50-50. Um, you know, I, I had a shop in my house. I luckily have like a house with a basement, so I had a small shop down there. So I was able to kind of separate the two the two things. Um, and it was 50-50, although I'd say like it was more like 60-40. I just wanted to build all day. You know, I would be I would just like get up and crank out my design work or whatever I had to do so I could go get you know, go get dusty and and build the furniture, what I really wanted to do. And, you know, I was just kind of getting bored, like having spent so much time in that career, it sort of became, I don't know that like easy is the right term, but it became kind of the same thing over and over the same, you know, solving the same problems for basically the same people. And it was just, I was not engaged anymore. Um, And it was like, I mean, it was easy money, you know, which is, which is always good, but it just wasn't worth it. It wasn't fun for me and I get bored easily. (laughs) So I was like, you know what, let's just, let's just kind of move on and, and see what happens if I follow my passion here. So at what point, what can you pinpoint when you decided to take that huge leap Mm -hmm. in terms of giving up your full-time job and saying, okay, this is the deciding factor. This is it. It's like ride or die at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me and and the advice I get is that you have to be stable in many ways in order to take that leap. Like financial stability is, is the big obvious one. And my wife works, right? So I knew that mm-hmm. I could rely on that income and, and sure we had to make a lot of sacrifices and we still do, but it was never like we're going to go hungry, right? I wouldn't advise somebody to right. to make a leap yeah. if if they're not sure they can actually make rent and yeah. so forth. So I have that, but I also have what I think is equally as important, which is um, a network of people that supported me and really kind of pushed me to do this. And there's there's one person in particular that um, I work with, and and I've been working with her for gosh, like maybe three or four years now. She's, she's, I started working with her when I was doing my, when I was still a uh, creative director role. So maybe even four years ago and she was doing leadership coaching for me. 
because I was managing a team of designers and, you know, lots of big accounts and everything. And over the years, we had just stayed in touch and, and continued to work together. And she's kind of become a life coach for me. Uh, you know, I don't even know how to describe her. A friend, a life coach, a mentor, therapist, all, all of the above. And really, she pushed me to really follow this dream. She could see it. She's like, you know, this is really what you need to be doing. And she helped me understand that it's okay to fail, you know, because I think that's something that everybody, myself included, was was really concerned about. It's like, I'm not afraid to try it, but I am afraid or to become embarrassed if I fail, you know, like what's going to happen if this doesn't work and I've set aside all this time and I've kind of put my career on hold for such a long period of time. But she made me feel like that's okay, which I think is really important and gave me the confidence. Uh, the other thing is just kind of getting to know other people in the space. So I, I did some kind of outreach to other woodworkers in this area and I talked to some of them and I talked to some others that I just kind of, you know, cold called, so to speak. And wanted to understand like how they did it, you know, and, and what were their challenges. And right. um, I think that was really helpful for me because there were so many unknowns. So making the leap was a long process. It wasn't just like a quick decision. It was like I needed to build the confidence to do it. And the confidence was more than just, can I do it? It was like, it's going to be okay if I fail and what's it going to feel like and all these different things. Um, so right. then, you know, I just kind of went for it. I think fear of failure holds us all back because especially in the age of social media, we don't really see, we don't see the failures because people don't talk about them. Um, yeah. and they don't talk about like the many ways in which they present themselves, um, or how long it takes, like the iterations in which we all seem to go through before we, we land on our feet, wherever that may be. Um, so I appreciate you bringing that up because I think that's something we really want to highlight in this podcast. The other thing that I think you touched on, and I don't even know, nor do I think I'm equipped to talk about this um, as thoroughly as it needs to be talked about, but there's such a privilege and being able to take the risk and start the business and that like your husband or your wife was working. So you knew you were going to be able to pay the bills. My husband is working and making a salary. So I knew we would be able to pay the bills. Um, and so there's this like inherent ability built in for some of us because of spouses or families spouses, or, yeah. you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and the financial risk is so huge, but I, I know that more needs to be done to level the playing field. So people who don't have that mm -hmm. kind of safety net built in in a family setting can access it elsewhere so that they're not afraid to fail because they won't be able to pay the mortgage or the bills. Um, yeah. And I'm, like I said, that feels like a can of worms. I don't even know how to like begin it's to unpack. It's definitely yeah. a privilege. It's definitely a privilege. And I, and I also will say that it, it, I could have done it without it because I know I could have done two things at the same time. I could have still done design work, but really the privilege was not having to do the design work as well and being able to truly focus, which I think was, was for the real privileges because I think focus is so important when, when trying to do something like this. I couldn't have done it both. So 
fully yeah. privileged. Well, the other thing I would say. Uh, well, so am I, right? <laughs> the other thing I wanted to touch on on starting the business was one of the things that was really unexpected for me was um, something that I had never heard anybody talk about um, and something I kind of discovered on my own was the change, the the way that my identity would change or the way that I would feel like my identity was changing. I spent so much time um, with this idea of who I was and the type of person that I was going to become all because of being tied to that career and spending so much time and investing so much time in what I was doing. And to give that up was, was mm-hmm. really one of the hardest things and to feel like it was okay to change my identity. And I think the important thing is that actually for me, this is actually more my identity than what I was doing before building furniture or just working with my hands. It actually really is who I am uh, more than anything. So, but it was a really big hurdle for me to come over to, to go over and to just go home dusty and dirty every day as opposed to like, you know, clean and comfortable. Like just little things like the way that I felt every day. Like, is this, is this the type of person I am? You know, somebody who makes things versus somebody that sits at a computer all day and, and, and does that type of work. And it felt like my identity was so tied to be, to being a creative director, to being a, a graphic designer, to change that was really tough. Right. Feel that change. I don't know if that has- I think that's a great yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was gonna say I think that's a great point because you don't you're right, not many people talk about the emotional um challenges that you experience when you make such a transition, right? Um so I totally appreciate you bringing that up because uh yeah, I would like I would like to hear what you know emotional uh, either transformations or challenges you had to go to to get to a certain point to feel comfortable with you know who you are and what you're doing. Um, yeah, so thanks for sharing that. Thanks for sharing that. I do wonder if that's exacerbated or um, top of mind for those of us in DC or the DMV area because so many times when you meet somebody, you're like, "Hi, you know, I'm Megan, and this is what I do for a living." Like those are they're so tied, and I do think there is a pitfall to tying so much of our identity to what we do for a living. Um, and I experienced the exact same thing um, when I walked away from law. And I don't know if you were hinting at this, but for me particularly, a law career was um, well looked upon, was um, was cons- considered a great success. I had made it through law school. I went to a prestigious law school. I landed a prestigious firm job. I got a great salary and benefits. And this was like what I was supposed to be doing. And to like walk away from that to start a brick and mortar is like, well, why would you, why would you do that? We don't value small business owners and brick and mortars like the way we value the lawyer who sits behind the computer desk in the same way. Um, so it did feel like I was like downgrading myself in some capacity and walking away from something that I'd been building for a good portion of my life, um, even if it didn't practice for that long. I think it's it's just easy, though, to fit somebody into a mold, right? And just have like a title. And it's easy for people to process that. And it just takes more effort to 
try and figure out why a lawyer or graphic designer would quit. You know, it's just more effort on the other person to try and understand. So it's just easy to think of molds, you know, being in a mold. So are you happier overall now that you feel like your true identity has been (laughs) like that you are who you want to be? You're free. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, Yes, I am happier. And I think the way that I sort of initially overcame it was really, um, well, first I came from a career that wasn't, you know, you talk about being in DC, like I wasn't a lawyer, right? I wasn't a lobbyist. I wasn't working at a nonprofit or whatever. I was already in a career that was a little bit unique, especially for, for this, for this uh, city. But, um, you know, I just kind of flipped it on its head and I said, like, all right, I'm making a lot of assumptions about how people are going to perceive me. They're going to maybe say, wow, he's really, you know, as you, I think, uh, appropriately said, downgraded. And I said, that's my assumption, but is that reality? You know, and I think the reality is actually people think it's really cool that somebody makes furniture, right? People think it's really cool that you own a brick and mortar store and, and a boutique and, and all these different things. So it's, you actually, it's just our, it's our own demons that are, that are telling us these things. And if we are truly objective about it and, you know, checking with the people that we trust and say, what do you think about this? And they're actually, that's really cool. And that's really interesting. I think my conversations with people now are much more interesting than they ever were. Right. It was like, Oh, I'm a designer. I work, I do, you know, websites for nonprofits. Like that's not that exciting, honestly, but putting furniture, working with my hands, people are way more interested in talking to me about that. So it's actually, you know, it was an, it was an incorrect assumption. Um, and for that, I'm, 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 you know, for that, it does make me happy, but really now that I'm kind of free to do what I will of, of course, I'm so much happier. It's, I am, I have made a lot of sacrifices. I continue to make sacrifices, but they don't feel like sacrifices. They feel like things that need to happen in order for me to maintain this level of happiness. And that's not a challenging thing to do. Those are, those aren't difficult sacrifices to make. I think like when we were asking you questions to prep for this, you talked a lot about problem solving. Can you talk about like how, how you view what you do and how you, how you, meld like the problem solving and the furniture building I think I'm so intrigued because I don't make I don't meet furniture makers and so it's so fascinating to watch you on Instagram you know assembling things or creating dovetail joints if that's the correct terminology um (laughs) it's just fascinating because I I think we have this nebulous idea that furniture gets made and then it shows up at my doorstep and somebody puts it together for me um if I pay for white glove service or otherwise I yell at my husband and we fight for 20 minutes as we assemble something like that's my concept of furniture but um I really appreciated kind of your insight into furniture as a way to problem solve um one because that is definitely true in small space city living and two I do think that that is broadly relevant to all business owners. I feel like we all started, I remember Anusha saying like, I needed to set a, set aside time for myself um, after I had kids. And so I started making bath bombs to allow me to set aside this time. So I feel like no matter what business we're in, we're all problem solving something, just a different problem. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the best way to describe that is everything I believe that everything, every product you can buy, every you know thing that you can make, there's an um, there's 
things that you can like about it objectively and there's things you can like about it subjectively. And I think are both are equally as important. And so when you're talking about furniture, especially when we buy furniture, we know we need a table, right? We know we need somewhere to eat. But beyond that, we just think, wow, I want, I want the most beautiful table. I want it to look great in my space. I want to enhance my space um, aesthetically and all these things. And that's largely how we buy furniture, especially if we're talking about furniture, is subjectively on what we like. But we don't spend enough time thinking about what's going to work for us in our spaces. You might say, okay, I need like a 60-inch table and it, you know, because I have so much room. But you might not think so much about how it's going to feel um, when you're working from home at that table or if you have to fit six people around it and are their knees going to hit the, the legs of the table? Like what's it really going to feel like? Are you the type of family that is um, – entertains a lot you know does it need to have a really durable surface and does it need to have be really sturdy for you know because you have kids you know rounded edges all these different things that are just as important objectively that um you know people don't think about as much when they're buying furniture or or any products that we buy emotionally right but i but i really tried to push my clients to understand that there's things that we need to consider to make them continue to like the piece right beyond delivery and when it's shiny and new why are we going to still like it 20 years from now we're going to still like it because it just was the right piece and it fits it's not as exciting that way you know to think about furniture as something that just works but it's a better way right it's more sustainable we're not buying more and more furniture we're buying one piece as opposed to like a, you know a piece every five years because we get bored with it so I really try to make pieces that fit with people's lifestyles, with their families, with their spaces, all the above, and then also make them look beautiful. But really the, the, the aesthetics of it for me is kind of secondary to the functionality and the way that it has to work and fit in the space. I mean, that is brilliant. And I tell you why, because I can think of this horrible coffee table <laughs> that I bought from a furniture store uh, a few years ago and my kids were little, very little. So two and four. And I had to buy those ugly rubber, you know, ends that you put on the corner, little corners to patch the corners. And I hated those things, but I needed them because I didn't want my kids to obviously hurt themselves. And now they're old enough. And guess what? I'm getting rid of that ugly coffee table. And I'll be going back to your Instagram and maybe talking to you about it. But that makes so much sense because when you said rounded corners, I'm like, man, I should have, you know, I wish I knew Dennis years ago. <laughs> yeah. I'm shocked well, to hear that aesthetics are secondary to your design, given how beautiful your aesthetics are. And I would not have imagined that you work in reverse. Yeah. You know, and I, I think there's the, the common term buy once, cry once. And it's, yeah, custom furniture is expensive, but it's not as expensive as replacing your coffee table three times. It's far yeah. less expensive than that. And that's what we do. Um, <laughs> you know, you uh, uh, are offering, you know, such beautiful furniture. And, you know, I grew up in a home in South Africa where, you know, you talk about materials and costs and Good wood and lumber is relatively cheap. Labor is relatively cheap. However, my dad worked with a carpenter one-on-one, and we still have this beautiful cherry wood 
dining table that seats 10 that's still at home that I still love and that really taught me the appreciation of custom-made furniture and the purpose of custom-made furniture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like I said, done are the coffee table days now. <laughs> but, you know, you're offering – and I, as a mom, again, like I look at um, just going and shopping – in a general furniture store, you just, you're going to get a salesman there. That's going to be like, well, this is good for you. But he's in that whole experience, not once in all my years of going into like you're looking for furniture. Has anybody looked at and talked about functionality? Not once. It's like, Oh, well this bed frame is this big and yeah, it'll fit in your space and it comes in these colors. And that's pretty much it but you're offering more and you're giving your clients, you know, something to think about. You're going, you're taking it a step further. Um, and, and that's what makes it so special, you know? Yeah. And, it, and it's also, you know, I'm lucky to live in a city because we all have such weird spaces here in DC. Like our, our row homes are like 18 feet wide and people's kitchens are galleys and, you know, we have all these unique spaces. So I benefit from that and, you know, it, it, it is a luxury, but for some people, it's also a necessity. Right? They just can't find the right piece. Yes. Uh, retail made is not, doesn't fit the space and, right. or doesn't right. do double duty. I feel like in the city, almost everything you own needs to serve multiple purposes. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your biggest struggles in kind of starting and growing the business? Um, I think that the the biggest struggles for me are, and I'm trying to like think of things that are relevant to other people and not just kind of, because there's a lot of stuff that's woodwork specific, right? Like I wish I knew more about wood movement, you know, and the, the different um, sort of ways that the materials react and because wood's a natural thing. It, 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 it shrinks and grows with the seasons and, um, I, you know, I wish I knew more about that and that's always been a struggle, but, um, you know, I think one of the things that, um, I constantly consider, and I, I guess you could call it a struggle is my, my brand and how I talk about how I communicate these messages that I'm talking to you about right now. How do I help my customers understand that my value is not in that I'm the the best builder or that I have the best designs or that I have the best lumber. My value is that I have this level of service that can help you find the right piece. And that is that education, that education I have to do to my customers is a constant sort of um, struggle, if you will. Um, and that's why I think that having a clear and consistent message is, is really important for new companies. And what is the story they're telling to their customers because if we don't have a story then customers are going to default to okay what are your prices and what are the specifications of your product because that's the easiest thing for me to understand Um, but really you know i'm offering a high value product an expensive product in most cases so i need to constantly prove my value beyond um you know trying to compete on price or uh, quality, right? Because 
I'm a good worker, good woodworker, but there's woodworkers that are better than me. I'm a good designer. There are designers that are better than me, but I offer something very unique and that's what I sell and that's where my value is. So constantly uh, working to fine tune my messaging and communicate that so that um, one, I find customers that uh, respect and understand that because those are the best type of customers. And two, they understand why it costs what it costs and why um, it's worth paying that versus or worth buying for me versus going to a retail store. Um, do you find that um, with your current messaging, you are attracting the, custo- the, like the customer that you want, the customer that appreciates what you have to offer? You're not getting people that are just focused on the price and it's um it's pretty good i would say um maybe 60 percent of my customers come to me understanding kind of what things cost and what um you know the value is um and i attribute that to like i think my messaging is good obviously i spent my career in in communications and branding so Mm -hmm. I've, I worked really hard on that and I continue to work hard on that. Um, yeah. But I do still get a lot of people that uh, are, are very surprised by what things cost or, um, you know, why I won't do something completely in plywood or whatever. You know, they don't understand that there's, um, you know, so there's there's definitely a lot of education I get. And, and that's kind of, I think that's probably never going to change and I and I accept that. Um, because I don't need everybody to, to, you know, buy my furniture, but I, I really do want to work with the people that understand it and that are willing to, to be open to understanding it as well. So it's pretty good. And that's, like I said, you know, I think that one of my, my biggest advantages coming into this is having that experience and understanding how to write messaging and how to write a brand promise and all those different things. What are my, what are my core values and all of that? Do you find your customers are coming through to you through Instagram or your website or Etsy, or is it vastly word of mouth or which sales channel is most effective for you? So, um, the, I've, I would say in the order of volume, it's mostly just Google search to my website. That's where I get most of my hits and I pay for advertising, which I think is so important. Um, at least until I have like enough word of mouth, right? There's a little word of mouth out there about me. There's Instagram and everything, okay. but, um, and I don't pay much. I pay maybe 120 bucks a month for just like some keyword advertising. And that is where most of my business comes through people searching customer furniture, custom furniture, people searching, you know, dining mm-hmm. table, desk, whatever, um, you know, and it's all geolocated to this market and the keywords are really fine tuned to the things that I want to be working uh, on and the type of customers that I think right. um, I'd be attracting. Um, so that is, I mean, that's probably 80 or 90% of, of my business comes through my site. Um, 10% comes through. I mean, that's Instagram. great. Yeah. 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 And it's, it that's helps that good. I'm kind of a niche business, right? Because it's not like, it, you know, it's it's affordable because my keywords aren't expensive because there's not a lot of custom furniture makers in the DC market. Mm-hmm. There's a handful of us, so yeah. it doesn't cost me fifteen dollars every time somebody searches custom furniture, right? Um, yes. 
So yes. that's that's the other thing, and and that's why also being niche really helps when uh, trying to market yourself mm-hmm. because the people that are going to find you are going to find you yeah. much easier. I did want to ask you a question because I think this may help uh, makers about how you um, found your space. Um, <laughs> well, it wasn't easy. I'll start there. <laughs> um, DC, unfortunately, is not super friendly for kind of small businesses like like me. Um, there's a handful of kind of artist lofts, artist studios, but not nearly enough for the amount of makers there are. Most people are working out of their homes, right? And that's what I was doing. Um, right. One of the biggest challenges for me is that I have such big equipment that um, uses a lot of, like I have specific power needs and I also have, like I make a lot of noise. So um, I couldn't be in an artist's loft or something like that because, you know, everybody would hate me. Um, so I actually found this, I, well, I'll, I'll start by saying I, I reached out to a bunch of commercial realtors and um, what I learned from them was I could probably find a space um, somewhere out in suburban Maryland or suburban Virginia, a small space or or a part of a space like a, at a co-op or something like that. But um, it would still be pretty expensive and uh, I wouldn't have it kind of dedicated to myself, which was, which was important to me because... Um, I just like to work alone. You know, I, I didn't want to really, I didn't want to share a space with like a metal fabricator or something like that. Um, it, it'd be a different thing if I, you know, was sharing a space with a, with another woodworker, which I think is probably where I'll be in a couple of years is probably, you know, I have, I have a network of woodworkers now and I think eventually we'll find a bigger space. But um, the way I actually found this space, Craigslist, you know, it's, it's literally, um, a residential garage, but the thing about it is the guy that built it, the the owner of the property built this as a shop for himself. So it has really good ventilation and I have 220 volt power. So I kind of just got really lucky. It's, it's a needle in a haystack, but I was, I was really um, just using every possible channel. Um, And I even have a friend in commercial real estate who was searching for me on, um, CoStar, which is the, uh, commercial real estate, um, database. Um, it's just, it's tough cause DC is not great, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I did want to stay in DC. I wanted to be near my home. I live in the city. I didn't want to have like a big commute, but I also wanted to share this space with my customers. I know that people think it's cool. I love to share it. I love to talk about what I do. And I wanted my customers to be able to visit. And that sometimes happens. And, you know, it'll hopefully happen more after COVID. But um, it's important for me to be able to, for people to be able to come and see their pieces being made, um, see the samples that I have, and and so forth. Finding spaces under 1,000 square feet in D.C. is not easy. I also found that to be a struggle for the brick and mortar. Yeah. Um, There's a couple co-ops. A friend of mine is in a co-op in, um, I think, Tacoma Park, and he does woodworking. And there's there's another co-op in um, Alexandria that I that I know the owner of. But again, both of those were a little too far for me. But co-ops are great, you know. If if um if possible, co-ops are are really 
the best thing for, for makers or just find, make your own co-op, you know, find, oh, if, yeah. if you're doing ceramics <laughs> or whatever, find four other people yeah. and, and get a space together. That's a good point. That's the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how COVID has impacted your business? I just think I hear all about furniture delays um, and COVID. Yeah. And I can only imagine. Well, it's really helped my business. Um, you know, everybody's, you, like you said, there are furniture delays, crane barrel. Everybody is on many months uh, out. Right now I'm on like a four-month or something um, lead time. And it's been great for me because people are at home analyzing their spaces. Um, you know, I've been building a lot of desks, you know, work-from-home situations, Um and one of the, actually the, the piece that I'm building next, I'm building actually two, two pieces right now that are both kind of, I would consider COVID related. Um, the piece I'm building right now is a large table and the gentleman I'm building it for um, has, he used to rent out his basement to like Airbnb, but he has since taken it over for his personal home office uses. So he needs a large kind of work center um, for the center of the room. So it's actually kind of like a dining table size, but it's going to have power outlets in it and wireless charging. And he's going to be able to do podcasting from it and, and everything like that. So it's like, I'm actually building a space, a, a mini conference table, if you will, for him. Um, and the other, the piece I'm doing next is, is really interesting and it's a super kind of fun work from home piece that really aligns with my um, desire to, to solve problems is I think I'm going to call it like a dresser. <laughs> it's a dresser slash desk. And um, what it's going to be is like two, three drawer dressers that are like 18 inches wide or 20 inches wide and by 20 inches deep. And they're going to be connected in the center by a, a, a piece of wood that kind of stretches across the top with a keyboard tray. So on the sides, it's going to be a dresser, and in the middle, it's going to be this desk. And when he no longer needs the desk, that piece is going to be removable, and then he has two independent dressers. So it's like he needs to work from home now, but he doesn't always have a desk in his room. So we have this solution where he can, in the future, not need a desk, but he still has these dressers that are highly functional for him. That's so cool. So doing a lot of fun stuff like that as well. That is impressive. (laughs) That is so cool. And that's the stuff I love doing, you know, because you're solving problems and making cool things. (laughs) Do you want to wrap up? Go ahead, Megan. Sorry. I was just going to say, do you want to wrap up with like, I don't know, one, one thing you would love to pass along to a, a new business owner or somebody starting out or considering it, like just your one little nugget that you, you would love to share with the world. Sure. I'll give two nuggets though. Okay. Um, <laughs> we'll take it. If that's okay. <laughs> um, the first one is that like I touched on before your messaging and your brand messaging, I think is so, so important. I put it up there um, with, writing a business plan as really important. I honestly, I didn't even write a business plan. I think that brand messaging is so much more important um, because if you don't know how to talk about your business very clearly in less than a sentence, 
then your customers are never going to know why they should hire you, why they should buy from you, whatever. And then you're going to easily fall into that trap of competing on price or quality. And then it's just kind of a race to the bottom. So it's really important to have value beyond the products you're offering. And that is your brand. That's always going to be your brand. Um, So focusing on brand messaging. The other thing is, is that it helps guide you in the future, right? If you're making decisions, if you're making decisions on what types of products to bring in or what types of customers to serve, you can just look at your brand messaging and look at your values and say, does this align with what I set out to do in these initial goals? And then decision-making becomes really easy. So it's not just good for kind of setting up your brand, but it's also good for decision-making. And with that, I know I know a lot of people think of branding as logos and colors and all that, and those are brand expressions. Those are things that come out of your brand, but your brand is really the gut feeling that your customers have about you. And uh, that is that is so critically important to to a new business. If you can figure that out, then the rest becomes so much easier. Sales become easier. Talking to your customers become easier. Making decisions become easier. Everything becomes easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I'd say is just surround yourself with people that can support you. It's impossible to do this alone. You know, you might be the one doing all the work, but you need people to be your um, sort of reflectors of of your ideas and people to tell you when you're off track or people to rely on or people to remind you that you're doing this for the right reasons and um, to stick in there. It's, it's really, you need people to help you with the emotional side of things as well. All right. Well, Dennis, it was such a pleasure to speak to you today. Um, I mean, I'm sure we've all learned so much from just hearing your story and, um, you know, the importance of messaging and what you do and what you offer offer customers. Um, so thank you so much for being on here. Thank you. And uh, I hope to follow up right next year sometime and see how far Dennis has come. <laughs> how have you grown? Oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> Interviews part two. How far have you come? Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited <laughs> for it. you. <laughs> it. All right. Thank all right, you. Thank so you guys much. both so much. This thank was you. fun. We'll see you all next week. <laughs>